So you remember last week we worked through the, the latter part of Genesis 3, which dealt with the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And we talked about the consequences that were doled out, the serpent's consequence to remain on his belly, uh, or from that point on be on his belly, indicating they probably had legs before that, we don't really know, uh, eat the dust, there'd be a future judgment of the bruising of the head, some would say crushing of a head, and the bruise of the heel, we think indicating the future of Christ, ultimately find its culmination in the end times. You look at Revelation, all right? There's a consequence to Eve as well. Uh, Eve now, because of her rebellion, has pain in childbirth. Uh, Her relationship with Adam is now distorted. There's a kind of a power struggle at play. Uh, There's no more real trust, perhaps, that the best intention is always being what's put forward uh, between Adam and Eve for each other, uh, that that relationship is now fragmented. And Adam, his consequence was that the work would now be hard, uh, that as he labors, it would be uh, work, like your knuckles will get bloody and you'll be exhausted, and death would come, both physical and spiritual death. And we know that because they are the figureheads of humanity. Those consequences are also passed on. And so, ladies, you've, if you've gone through that childbirth experience, it wasn't pleasant. Right? If you've done any sort of work, gardening, those things, you know the ground does not always give you what you would like. Life had changed in that moment. Relationships, even friendships now, are troublesome and hard. And then the final consequence, they were cast out of the garden. The concern there was uh, they can't, in, in their broken mortal state, take and eat from the tree of life. God did not want sin to continue on forever. And so he, actually it was his grace he cast them out. We know a cherubim was there to guard the entrance. And in all of that, then God clothes them. And that peaceful existence that Adam and Eve once knew was now over. But even though that, that, that peacefulness was over, their mandate continued on. Their mandate, right, to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over the earth, it, it went on. It just would not be as easy as it could have been. It was now complex and difficult and laborsome and tiresome, and yet God remains present with them. And I think it's important, seeing all the struggle, God remained consistent in their lives, he was present with them. It may not have been as intimate as it once was in the garden, but he was still with them. He didn't cast them out and say, I'm done with you. But it must have been different. See, for Adam and Eve, again, originally life was pretty simple. It was in the garden. There was relationship and communion with God. He was present. I think there was probably an ease to life. And there was an ease to just the simplicity in their relationship with God. It probably was fairly easy to trust God, to take God at his word. And yet, even in that ease, there was rebellion. And likely, they now find themselves at an even greater loss. What was once so simple to trust and follow God was now much more difficult. It's likely that that life of worship that they were created with and for was now one that was a challenge. And perhaps maybe you can actually relate to that. A time in, in your life you can think back to that, that it just seemed like a life with God was fairly simple. Trusting God came easy. You may not have fully understood Him, but just it seemed less complex anyway. And that simplicity of relationship with God, 
may have been led to a simplicity of just what life was like walking through the day with him. Prayer, perhaps, was easier. Maybe the idea of living a life as, as worship was more in the front of your mind than it is today. Your choices in life, perhaps, were made kind of filtering through what would God desire? What would his words say into that situation or this situation? I don't know. But if you're like me at all, you can probably relate a little bit. Where you can look back and see moments in your life where, man, it just seemed really simple. Man, it seemed like God was really present and really intimate and really second nature living was, was one of the things that came the easiest in that moment. And then maybe right now you're just in a time of, man, you're wondering where is God? Where is his presence? Why is there joy? Why is there strife? I don't know where you're at right now. But when those moments come where we just begin to wonder and question perhaps where God is and think deeper beyond everything and maybe even search the scriptures for help, right? these are moments that for so many have led to hopelessness. There's probably were times for Adam and Eve in this existence, there's probably some hopelessness. They could just remember back and remember being in the garden and think, it was so good. Maybe the same things for your life. You, you can think back and man, life was, was good in that moment. When we find ourselves in those hopeless moments, we just find ourselves wondering, how do we get back? Hopelessness is a, is a word that's on the rise in our culture. Right, fall 2018, there's a study that, that was done. 20.2 of all U.S. college students said they felt like things were hopeless. Almost a quarter of college students, like, Life hasn't begun yet in so many ways for them. They're already saying it's just hopeless. And that's just a small segment of the population. Adam and Eve must have wondered the same thing, longed for peace, longed for hope, longed to go back, but there was no end in sight. There was likely hopelessness that was part of their existence. And there are times for you and for me, there are seasons when we run and live in moments that are not quite as tranquil as we'd like, and we struggle through those. And there are moments, I think, if we're honest, where we would just want to tell people, this is hard. But we don't. We don't tell people it's hard. We tell people things are good. When they ask us, how are things going? They're good. Or we say things like, they could be better. But we never fully reveal our cards. We never fully give an indication to what really is going on in our lives. That yes, even us, if you identify as a Christian, even us as Christians, sometimes the days are just hard. For whatever reason, we feel like we can't be that transparent. We, we somehow will let people see that we're broken as well. In those moments, I think we need truth over that situation Truth is what guides us. Truth is what reminds us. And I think Genesis 4 is helpful for that truth today. So with kind of that thought in mind, let's just look really at just the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 4 this morning. This is God's word. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. How fast things have changed. We're really not given any indication how much time has gone by here. We don't know how old Cain and Abel were in this moment. But for Adam and Eve, life continued on. Life was certainly different. It was a new life they were living. Their work was hard. Their life was not a peaceful one, but now their life led to tired backs, dirty hands, and days of long labor. But don't forget, in all of that, God was still present. God never walked away. It may have been hard, but God was still there. And Adam and Eve began to fill their task of the earth, right? And there's two sons that were born, Cain and Abel. And even Eve reminds us, she recognizes that God has a sense of, of presence there. And even Eve gives some optimism here, actually, when she says in that verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. See, Eve was there when the whole consequences were being doled out, right? She remembered what was told to the serpent. And here, right, there will be one to the serpent whose head right, will crush that of the serpent. I think in this first statement here, I've got a man with the help of the Lord, is actually Eve's optimistic. This baby birth, this baby boy that she now has was an indication that God will still keep his promise, God will still be present, and God will still work to accomplish what he said he will accomplish. And there's an ongoing relationship, and though they're not present in the garden, God is not distant. And so what do we know about these two sons? They really have contrasting occupations, don't they? Cain is this farmer, right? He works the ground with his hands, he tills the soil, he's got vegetables and fruit, I guess. I don't know, we just know he's a farmer. Abel's this herdsman or this shepherd. He's this keeper of these things, he's raised and cared for these animals. This is not a comparison to say one is better than the other, just they had two occupations. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? You know, it doesn't make sense to have in the same family two sons who are trying to accomplish the exact same thing, but have two ones trying to accomplish other things. And there's a time when they were bringing an offering to God, the scripture tells us. And again, a reminder, God was still present. He's known to them. And they're continuing to recognize that he is God. And so they're, they're bringing offerings to him. And they both bring them, we assume, to show the same intent. Their intent was to honor God. You don't bring an offering. You don't bring a gift to somebody if you're not trying to honor them. He's trying to be honored right, through Cain and through Abel's action. They're bringing these offerings to show gratitude and thankfulness to who God is and, and for what he's done. They're both doing the same thing. They're bringing an offering as an act of worship to the worship the God of the universe for all of his glory. And so if you're the spectator watching this happen, you're seeing the same things take place. Both are bringing offerings. Both seem to be doing the right thing. 
And in this moment, as both these men bring before the Lord an offering of what they've worked for and cared for, we would assume their actions are equal. But there's a subtle difference in them. Look at verse 4. It says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. See, Cain had brought some of the harvest he'd grown. It probably wasn't rotten. It probably wasn't horrible to the eye. Like, you know, you see those disfigured, right, gigantic zucchinis that get grown. There's actually a whole fascinating market online for like odd-shaped vegetables. Like someone has a heart for these things and so they want you to buy them. It probably wasn't those things. It probably was appealing and pleasing. But Abel had brought something distinct and different. He brought the firstborn of his flock. And the fat portions, the best of what he had, he brought. In other words, Abel brought an offering that was of great value to him. And he wanted to give it as an offering, not keep it for himself. And what we see next is a fascinating response that God has. So God's response to Abel was that he had regard. The NIV says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. God was pleased with it. Man, it seemed like, man, when God looked, he was maybe even joyful with it. But God's response to Cain was different. It says he has no regard. In other words, on Cain, he did not look with favor. This is not an attempt to elevate eating meat over being a vegetarian. So then why would God have favor on one offering over the other? Both brought an offering, didn't they? They both brought something. They both went above and beyond. The answer lies, again, in the description of what was brought. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground that he worked and labored for. But Abel brings an offering of the firstborn, the best of what he had. And there lies the difference. See, in this moment, what we see is that God looks far beyond just our outward actions. And it's likely that that if you sat in a church service for any amount of time, this is nothing new to you. But I'll tell you what scares me as I read through this. They both brought something. (laughs) They both looked like things were just fine. From all outward appearances, their lives were both being lived exactly the same. This story reminds us that God looks far beyond the action and far beyond the outward appearance. See, this bringing of an offering surely was to be admired. It was commendable from both of them, but the reality is God was not hungry He wasn't satisfied by food being brought to him. It was the intent behind the offering. This bringing of this offering was a way of saying thank you to God for his provision, to acknowledge God and his glory, to recognize his work in their lives, and to praise him. In other words, this offering bringing was simply worship. And though both brought offerings, one was willing to bring an offering of the very best and most valuable thing he had. The heart of Abel was willing to walk away from the preciousness of that animal and give it to God. See, so much of what we do in life is like these two. I mean, this, so much of what we do in life 
comes across as just the right thing to do. Other things we do in life come by as a sense of obligation, right? We pay taxes because we have to. It's an obligation we have to live here, to pay taxes. We go to work because we need to eat. At times we give gifts at Christmas time because we fear that the person might give us one and then it would be awkward for everybody. But it's always like out of this obligation. We do so many things out of obligation. I was just looking next March, I'll get my new license out of obligation because I have to. And so much of our life, we, we, we kind of live this rhythmic thing that we just kind of do. But a lot of times, this obligation living really is, is living out of guilt. It's living out of this guilt that if we don't do this thing, then something will come back to us. Right? If that's true to some extent, right? If you don't go to your job, there will be something coming back to you. A warning, maybe two or three. And then a, you don't need to come in tomorrow, piece of paper. But in this situation, there seems to be an indication that there was an obligation that was being felt to bring something to the Lord, to offer it to him. But the heart wasn't right. And we do this all the time in our lives. You feel obligated to be nice to somebody, to call someone maybe, to hold the door for somebody. But man, the, the look on your face says, this is not what I want to do. And I wonder, does that creep its way in to our relationship with the Lord? This obligation living. See, again, Cain gave the offering, but it just simply wasn't his best. He withheld that back. He gave it, but it was not a heart that he gave it with that was eager to worship God. He held back. This obligation living is is just normal for so many of us, but it's not meant to be a normal part of our relationship with God. And so I think to talk about this obligation living has to talk about more than just the surface of your life and of my life, but it has to be then to talk about your heart. And some of you don't want to talk about that. Not interested. By heart, I don't mean the emotion place of you, but I mean like the deep core of who you are. Perhaps maybe you're here this morning out of some sense of obligation. I'm just supposed to do it. But there's 40 other places you'd rather be in a laundry list of things you could be doing. Perhaps at times we give to charitable organizations out of some guilt or obligation. It could be that you even enter into reading your Bible because you're told that you're supposed to do that. And you pray so you can check off the list of things to do and move on without feeling guilty for the rest of your day. And the hard thing is, those are all good things, aren't they? Like reading your Bible is good for you. Praying is good for you. Being generous is good for you. And gathering with God's people is good for you. They're all good for you. But they're not done for you. God desires them to be done for him. See, God looks far beyond our actions still today, and he looks at the heart behind what we do. 
See, the heart that only you know, right? The heart that motivates you. This heart is what God looks at and examines and studies. Listen to Proverbs 21.2. It says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. That is terrifying. Because I can justify just about anything I do. I can. To myself, and I promise I can justify it to you. But even if I can do that, and somehow spin it to be godly even, what does this proverb remind me? But the Lord weighs the heart. Man, like what, what's going on in there? This is the psalmist in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Right, in that moment, the psalmist recognizes, look, the voice that goes out, right? That's not the right verse. Need that down. All right, it should be 1914, that's my bad. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Words, right, and what's going on inside? See, this breaking down the relationship with Cain and God was a heart that was simply not fully given to the Lord. I think the reality is that Cain's heart, his life, was not in full recognition of the glory of God and the joy of knowing him. Cain was seemingly just concerned about paying his dues and moving on. And God warns against this type of living. He gives caution. And I think that caution is not just for Cain's own benefit. I think it's for our benefit as we read about it. Look at verses 6 to 7 in your Bible. It says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See, in this moment, God is, is again being gracious with Cain. He's not saying, Hey, Cain, um, real quick, I know that you don't care about this. I know you don't care about this little offering thing. Appreciate you, what you did, but I, let's just cut to the chase. You're out. God doesn't say that to Canaan. In fact, he goes in his conversation, says, look, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And God knows, by the way, God knows your heart. He knows Cain's heart. He knows why his face has fallen. Cain wanted to be accepted by God. He wanted what he brought forward to be good enough. And don't you? Don't you want your life just to be good enough? But I think of those commercials, right, when that are on right now, and when it's okay is good enough. Right? It's just okay. That doesn't feel right. 